I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Writer's Routine. This is the show that takes you inside the day of an author in the hope that some of the tricks and the nuances of how they get to work maybe can help us do the same. Oh, today, by the way, we're talking serious success. One of the biggest crime writers in the UK is on the show. Mark Billingham is publishing his 18th novel this month. It will be the 15th in his brilliant Thorne series, all about the copper, Tom Thorne. Now, we talk about the new book that he's publishing soon uh, and also why it's based on a real-life case and how he moulded his own ideas and characters to fit inside that. We chat about why this was never meant to be his proper career and how it started him just being a huge crime-writing fan and he kind of picked up a pen, then ran with it. And also, why the name of this whole podcast kind of gives him the shivers. Most writers I know don't have one. You know, not a proper one. I mean, it's not a nine-to-five job. You know, I I very very much mistrust writers who say, well, I write from nine to eleven, then I have a sandwich and a cup of tea, and then I sit down again at half eleven. It's it's not like that. At least it's really not like that for me. So stay there. It's all on the way on this week's Writer's Routine. Yes, hello, welcome along, it's Writer's Routine number 32. Uh, My name is Dan Simpson, thank you so much for giving us a listen. And if you're into the art and the craft of being a writer or just being creative really, and you're curious about the different ways that you can organise your own creativity for maximum efficiency, well, this is the place you need to come. Lordy, I'm sorry, that was uh, quite a long explanation for something that I'm sure you already knew from the title, Writer's Routine. Anyway, thank you, I want to say, and welcome if you've only found the show in the last few weeks and started listening since our silver win in the British Podcast Awards. Uh, I've had a look at all the data, crunched the numbers, and I've noticed quite a few new listeners since that win. And if that is one of you, thank you so much. I hope you'll enjoy what we're doing. I hope you'll come back again and remember we've got 30 more episodes of the show full of tips from the best writers around that you can catch up on through your favorite podcast place if you are enjoying it by the way it would be fantastic if you could let people know now there are two ways that you can do that firstly uh, i don't know with like a loud hailer or something or just tell someone that you know about it maybe you're part of a writing group or your friends with an aspiring writer, but you know that they're kind of struggling to tell their story. Well, tell them about what we do and all the advice that we've got from authors so far on the show. Point them in our direction. Also, uh, you can tell someone that you don't know about the show. 
Now, the best way to do that is to head over to the iTunes podcast store and try and effect that elusive chart. No one knows how it works, but you can do your best uh, by leaving Writer's Routine a review. So find us on there. Uh, drop your name. Maybe write a little story as well about the best piece of writing advice you've heard so far on the show. And if I see your name and I see that we've moved up the chart because of it, I'll say a big thank you in the next few episodes. Today's guest on Writer's Routine is the wonderful Mark Billingham. Now, he will publish his 15th book in the Tom Thorne series later on this June. It's his 18th published novel overall. It's called The Killing Habit, and it's all about a case that is currently still unsolved and, like, making news right now. Uh, We'll find out how Mark has blended the characters that millions of his readers love and his own dark, twisted ideas into a real-life mystery that's still confounding quite a lot of people. Now, his first novel, Sleepyhead, was published back in 2001. It went straight into the Sunday Times bestsellers list. It was the biggest selling debut of the summer as well. And a few years later was put on the telly, starring the grizzled scouser, David Morrissey. Uh, You can find out how that affected the way he wrote his stories post-TV in a little bit and how his writing style has changed over the course of 18 novels too. Now, I know that we've had a few crime writers on the show in the last few weeks. I've accidentally kind of got into that sect, really. But I really do think that Mark does the best job of summing up in around a sentence what the secret to a good mystery is. And you can hear that on the way in this chat. Also, we'll get a top writing tip that may change the way you work forever. This week, it's all about how you can put down your pen, take it easy, rest your fingers, but still tell your story. Now, very quickly before we start, you might have noticed I stuck a little explicit warning on this episode of the show, just to be sure. It's not like massively sweary or anything, just a few casual words that might jerk your attention up if you're listening with kids or something. It's nothing to be worried about, I just thought I should let you know. It's all on the way in the chat, which we should probably start. Uh, So let's have a quick trip to North London with the fantastic crime author Mark Billingham and talk through his writer's routine. Well, I normally sit down to write in my office, uh, which is upstairs from where we are right this minute. Um, I can only kind of write properly at home. I'm terrible. I can't really write on planes and trains and in hotel rooms and stuff. So I, I normally need to have my office. So I have uh, a, a big old desk that's covered in all sorts of rubbish. And uh, I'm looking out the window at a garden, which again is not always advisable because... It's very easy to to get distracted. You know, I sit down to work and then I go, oh, look, a squirrel. Oh, look, a woodpecker. And, um, you know, and that's without Twitter and emails arriving and stuff. But I got a lot of stuff around me that I'm I'm comfortable with. Lots of of kind of music memorabilia from some of my favourite artists. And then the odd bit of weird stuff like animal skulls and taxidermy. But let's not go into that. Um, Because people will think, oh, typically weird crime writer surrounded by death. Um, Yeah, and that's about it really. Obviously lots of books and magazines and guitars and that kind of jazz. Are you taking inspiration from what's around you? I only say that. I've had the pleasure of walking through your house here. And there is stuff filling every inch of the wall. And there's not too much theming yeah yeah thanks for not mentioning the the stuffed crow well you're uh, a crime writer I perched thought that's on a, a microphone <laughs> um yeah no oh, i suppose i do really i mean i suppose everybody likes to surround themselves with stuff that um that they enjoy that inspires them to one degree or another yeah and maybe that is why i can only kind of really write there i mean don't get me wrong i can make notes uh, anywhere if something occurs to me i've usually got a notebook in my bag um but actually sitting down and putting a book together and structuring it and whatever i i have to be at home really in my office 
So the show is called Writer's Routine. Yes. Let's talk about yours then. The moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed on a day where you are sitting down to write, leave no stone unturned for me. <laughs> well, if it is a day when I am genuinely doing nothing else but writing, the first thing to say is I almost certainly won't get dressed. Um, and that's not to say I pot around the house naked, but I have a kind of writing, uh, tatty writing outfit, which is a sort of ratty old dressing gown and what I pretentiously call lounging trousers, but which are in fact pajamas. Uh, and probably a t-shirt, very much like the one I'm wearing now, Johnny Cash t-shirt, just... And I'll just slob around and I may not leave the house for two or three days. But there's something in the very word routine that makes me kind of shudder a little bit. Because actually, most writers I know don't have one. You know, not a proper one. I mean, it's not a nine to five job. You know, I very, very much mistrust writers who say, well, I write from nine to 11. Then I have a sandwich and a cup of tea. And then I sit down again at half 11. It's it's not like that. At least it's really not like that for me. I may sit down at my desk at nine o'clock and actually do bugger all. Um, except think about stuff, look out the window, deal with email and Twitter and business, and then actually sit down and do my day's work at midnight. Because you're writing the book all the time. I mean, I know I said I can actually only do the writing, the physically do the writing in my office, but I'm writing the book when I'm on the bus or walking the dogs or having a shower or pushing a trolley around the supermarket because the book's in your head all the time. You know, when you get to your computer and sit down and put it down, that's kind of typing. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but there is no routine because it really isn't a structured day for me in that way. I want to get a certain number of words done every day. You know, every writer talk about the magical thousand words, and I'm very happy if, if, if I can do that, even happy if I can do 2,000 words. But I might, like I say, I might do that between midnight and 2 o'clock in the morning, having done very little for the rest of the day. So it's not, it's not very structured. So without structure, I guess the only reason that I'm quite focused on a routine is because I'm aware that for some people, creativity needs to be harnessed. And for something like writing where, as you say, it's going on in your brain the whole time, but to physically sit down and get it done on your keyboard, in front of your computer, is there anything that you do that you find helps you get that part of the work done? Um, Well, I mean, one of the things I mentioned early on was getting distracted by looking out the window. And actually, I work work better when it's dark I do generally work better when it's when night has fallen I mean for several reasons firstly very practically the house is much quieter um, you know in terms of domestically there's less people running about in the house and doing stuff um, I'm not getting emails arriving and you know and I know yeah I could always engage freedom on one of those programs on my computer and cut myself off I'm just I don't have that much willpower and I'm looking out the window at darkness I'm looking out at nothing and it kind of suits what I'm writing really so yeah I mean if I'm if, if I'm going to be at my most creative I suppose it would be then but actually you have to be incredibly good at time management and I'm not I'm not talking about on a daily basis I'm talking about on a, on a yearly basis um, I deliver a book a year and, and have done for nearly 20 years book every year and I've never missed a deadline it will always get delivered but that's not writing every day and that's knowing that I've got to spend a certain part of every year touring and promoting the book that came out last year or going to a different country and promoting the book they've just published so I've got to work I've got to look at a diary and go well I know I'm not going to get any writing done in September so I've got to make sure I've got enough done in August so that do you know what I mean I I have to kind of manage my time and I've got a pretty good sort of inbuilt calendar where I can look at the progress of a a book that I'm writing and go okay well I'm I'm 50,000 words into that so do you know what I'm about halfway through that I've still got eight months of the year to deliver that I'm fine you know, I, I, I can look at it that way. If I ever, ever look at it and go, I've done 50,000 words, I've got to deliver it next month, ah, then that's a bit... But, you know, thankfully, that, that doesn't happen most of the time. 
Let's talk about the work in progress, which is as yet untitled, which I know, you know, I know will be published in June 2019. Um, that is a book that I am about halfway through, and I think I started writing it in February. So actually, I've, I've put a bit of a lick on at the start of this year, and uh, and I'm cracking through it. But that that's because I know I've got a very busy time coming up. I've got a book coming out in a month. So so for about six weeks after that, I'll be doing very little writing because I'll be touring that book to promote that book. I've got a lot of festivals coming up here and overseas. That's going to take a lot of time. Um, I'm also doing a, a, a silly little side thing with a bunch of other crime writers. We have a band called the Fun Loving Crime Writers, and we're doing a lot of festival appearances and stuff. And that's all time you can't write. Like I say, I can't just, oh, I'll go pop back to the hotel room for an hour and write a chapter. I can't do that. Um, so it tends, it tends to take probably about eight months for me to, to write a first draft, but it's a very, very clean first draft. I've got a weird kind of OCD thing about I will not deliver a draft that's got a typo in it. That's got a, you know, but by the time by the time I deliver in inverted commas to my editor, that draft's already been redrafted dozens and dozens of times. Is I that ongoing f- editing, chapter yeah, to chapter? Absolutely, I can't. I'm not one of those writers that can just plow forward towards the end. I can't write chapter two until I'm absolutely happy with chapter one, and and as a microcosm of that, I can't write a paragraph till I'm absolutely happy with the paragraph before. So it's a very slow, slow kind of accretion. Um, but that means by the time I go the end, although of course. I never type the end. I've never met a writer who types the end. Um, by the time you get to the end of that first draft and you deliver it, it's in pretty good shape. So I will then have one major edit on that with my editor who will send me back notes going, the middle 14 chapters are terrible. I don't like that character. Well, I will do my edit and then it's pretty much done. Apart from, you know, the little things, the copy editing and the proofs and all that stuff. But it's it's pretty much a two draft job. Are you and the rest of the crime writers that are in your band slightly for want of a better word, regretting it because it's taken so much away from no, time no, away from it's things. No, it's the other way. It's the the other way around. We we love doing it so much that actually going back to the the day job of writing the books is <laughs> is really tricky. We had a big show on uh, Sunday night in Newcastle, and we're still so I'm still slightly coming down and already looking forward to the next show, which is next Saturday up in Scotland. No, it's it's brilliant. It's brilliant to do something that's collaborative with a bunch of other writers because obviously what we do most of the time is is very solitary. Um, and we're just sitting on our own making stuff up. So it, it's great to get out with some mates and, and indulge some middle-aged rock star fantasies. <laughs> so say you're, say you're at a festival, okay? Yeah. Um, say you've got a month booked solid of almost back-to-back festivals. You're touring your brand new book. Yeah. So you haven't got much time to write your new one. Uh-huh. How much of a refresher do you need when you, you're sat back again with your laptop trying to tell this story, which maybe you typed the last word of four weeks before? Well, well, I mean, a bit. You might you might go back and read the, the the last three chapters you wrote or something, but but nine times out of ten, it's a good thing. Nine times out of ten, it's a good thing to just walk away for a little bit, um, because sometimes you sometimes you just especially especially in crime fiction, which relies to a certain degree on on plotting and and all that sort of stuff. Sometimes you just paint yourself into a corner, um, and you have to walk away and figure out how you're going to get out of it. Because um, you've gone up a bit. Because I'm not a big planner, you know. I don't have a huge, you know. I do have a whiteboard in my office, but all it says on it is "get dressed, buy cheese, write novel." That's the only things it says on my whiteboard. Um, so I'm not a big planner, which means I'm, you know, I go up a lot of blind alleys and stuff. So actually, walking away and doing something else for a while, you come back um, and suddenly you you see a way past the problem. And the other thing is, every single writer I respect thinks what they're currently writing is crap. 
really genuinely thinks it's crap every single writer i respect you know if i meet a writer and go how's a new book going they go oh it's great i think "Uh oh you know that's really not a good sign you've got to have that sort of doubt about what you're doing and actually walking away then coming back and having a look at it a few weeks later and going oh do you know what it's all right actually um it's not as bad as i feared um so actually taking a break and doing something i mean a nightmare for me would be to have to lock myself away in some cabin for six months and just do nothing but write the book that would be terrible i I need to have those little distractions and other things and and that stuff like like festivals and touring and uh, bits of tv and radio and all that stuff that's that's the perk of the job for me i mean i love that stuff i'm come from a performance background i used to be a comic and an actor so doing that stuff is great i know writers who'd rather stick needles in their eyes than do that stuff but i love it it's actually the the writing that is the you know pain in the neck you talk about plotting and planning and earlier, uh, you mentioned how you've pretty much got your editing process down in that your stories are almost two draft works. Let's talk about how that's developed then. So from the very first book that you published, this would have been the Tom Thorne novel Sleepyhead. Yes. Talk to me about the process of how that came to be. And then we'll talk about your most recent one, which is The Killing Habit. Is this out next month? Yeah, next month. Um the, the the thing, of course, is that when everybody writes their first book, they don't write it in the expectation that they're going to be published. Um, if they do, there's probably something wrong with them. So you're writing that sort of that book sort of for you. You don't know how it works. You've never done it before. You don't know the rules. You don't know uh, what you should do, what you shouldn't do. So I sat down with uh, a notebook. I was on holiday with the family, and I would sit outside this this villa in wherever the hell we were, Corfu or something, um, and just write longhand in a in a notebook every night with a couple of bottles of beer. And at, at the end of a fortnight, I sort of looked at it and thought, "Hang on, that's about that's about thirty thousand words," because I'd been very daunted by the idea of writing a novel because I just thought, you know, I'd written all sorts of other stuff, but novels, I thought they're like house bricks. You know, how much work is that? And then I suddenly realised I'd written about a third of a novel in two weeks. I mean, obviously it was just it was gibberish, but you know, at least I'd done that number of words. So I thought, ah, this is... So I went home and I worked on those uh, 30,000 words and got them as good as I could and then sent those 30,000 words off to a bunch of agents. You know, I bought a thing called the Writers and Artists Yearbook, picked a few agents out, wrote, and a couple of agents said, yeah, we'll have that. And then that got sent off and like five publishers wanted it and there was an auction and I was like, what? And And I've since discovered that's not the way it's supposed to happen. I mean, I had, you know, when, when I talk to unpublished writers and they say, how do you, you know, how do you make a career out of this? I say, work hard and be lucky. Um, and I was phenomenally lucky. And I've met writers whose luck I clearly had. You know, I had, I had enough luck for a dozen writers because, you know, your manuscript has got to land on the desk of an agent who just happens to be looking for a writer like you at that point. And then across the desk of an editor who's like, oh, I'm just looking for a kind of new male British crime writer. Or, you know, you need a, you need a tremendous amount of luck. The problem then comes, or the problem, but the pressure then comes when they go, great, and they sign you up for two books and your first book does okay. And you've then got to do another one and you go, oh. And the big lesson, I mean, the big lesson is that it's way harder than it was the first time, way harder. And then the third book is harder still, and the fourth book is harder still. And that was a massive shock to me. I was like, why did nobody tell me that? Why did nobody tell me that it gets harder? I'd read a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, which is about um, a French photojournalist who suffered a terrible stroke and afterwards was left suffering from this thing called locked-in syndrome, whereby he was completely aware and completely awake and could hear and hear and see and feel, but could not move. I mean, it's like being trapped in your own coffin, completely unable to move other than blinking. So he dictated an entire novel by blinking. 
an entire uh, non-fiction book. And I thought this was just extraordinary, but a twisted little part of me thought, oh, I wonder if you can do that to somebody on purpose. That would be really terrible. That would be like worse than death. And my wife's a TV director, and she was at that time working on a show called Casualty. And she said, oh, come and talk to our medical advisor. So I went and met this amazing doctor um, called Phil Coburn, who said, wow, that is seriously twisted, but with a kind of glint in his eye. Um, I thought, yeah, you're my kind of doctor. And he said, yeah, you could do it, but it had been incredibly difficult and needed tremendous degree of skill and every time you got it slightly wrong they'd die and I just thought that I just knew I had a, a book idea and you know that was a kind of light bulb moment you know the idea of the serial killer who isn't actually trying to kill anybody but he's trying to do something else and so um when I submitted that manuscript 30,000 words of completely un, unfinished novel I had a shout line for it you know the kind of shout lines that you see on posters and stuff and it said, you know, he doesn't want you alive. He doesn't want you dead. He wants you somewhere in between. And I put that across the bottom of the manuscript. And a year later, it was on the sides of buses. And, I, you know, that worked. It just kind of worked. Um, but, it was, yeah, it was just a sort of slightly twisted light bulb moment, I suppose. Talk about the hero, then. Talk about Tom. Well, he wasn't actually, I mean, this is the thing, the book, that first book was really about the victim, who's this young girl who spends the entire book in a coma and you're inside her head because she can't move. But obviously I needed a cop. I needed a cop because, you know, there were detectives and there was a crime to solve. So I just came up with this guy, Tom Thorne, without really knowing who he was at all. And I didn't write any kind of dossier on him or backstory for him I just put him on the page and, and set him off and essentially that's still what's happening the reader knows as much about Tom Thorne as I do I don't have a plan for him he just develops book on book and I suppose the theory behind that is that if I'm still interested in him then hopefully the reader still will be because I want him to keep being surprising and unpredictable so I don't have a plan for him I don't know everything there is to know about him and- does he exist outside of your stories though you're saying that you're developing as you're writing his story, 15 of them now come June. Could you plonk him anywhere and know exactly what he would do on that day at that time? Yeah, kind of. I think, I mean, that's the, I mean, one of the things is I've never really described him. So there's not really much of a, f- a visual image of him because I'm inside his head all the time. So I'm, I'm the one that's looking out through his eyes at the world. So I know kind of what he thinks about stuff. I know what his opinions are. I know what kind of music he likes because it tends to be what I like. Um, and that kind of stuff. What he looks like is neither here nor there. Um, you know, once, once, you know, he, he was, he was, played by an actor called David Morrissey on television. And once that happens, then he becomes slightly fixed in people's minds. But I can genuinely say I don't see David Morrissey when I write the books. Um, because, you know, David Morrissey was, was brilliant as Tom Thorne, but he's not necessarily the Tom Thorne in my head. And that can happen, of course, once your character has a, you know, a manifestation on a, on a screen, then it can become fixed in the writer's head. You know, it very famously happened with Colin Dexter and Inspector Morse. Um and so, yeah, that's something you've got to be wary about. No, I, I think, yeah, I think I could plonk him anywhere. I could sit and have a drink with him and I think I'd know what he'd be on about most of the time. That's fascinating. I was going to ask you about David Morrissey yeah. being Tom. When you've seen on the telly something that has solely existed in your head, yeah. does that change anything about the way you're telling the story? Does it become almost more cinematic? <sighs> Well, I think the stories, the stories you, stories of people of my age, right, tend to be fairly cinematic anyway. Because you're, I'm every bit as influenced by stuff I watched on television as you know. I'm every bit as influenced by Columbo as as by anything I've ever read. It's the greatest detective sh- television show ever made. You can argue with me, but you will be wrong. Um, 
I, I, by the time, by the time anything you write finds its way onto a television screen, it's not very close to what you wrote anyway. You know, I've been through that process a number of times now, and you know, bar the names of the characters being the same, um, lots of stuff changes. But you know that that's the deal. You know, you know that's going to happen, and you let the people in in those uh, TV productions do their thing. You know, they they buy it and they do their thing, and that's fine. I know, so I, I can honestly say I never write. I never write thinking, oh, this would make a good scene, but. You write visually, you write cinematically. I do kind of, I like to start a book with almost like a pre-title sequence, like with a strong opening scene that just leaves a load of questions. So yeah, I mean, quite often I think about pre-titles and and and, uh, and sort of epilogues and things that happen. And, but, you know, no, I'm not writing to be televised or, 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 or adapted for the screen. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We've got a tip that could change the way you tell your story forever in just a sec. First, if you are new to Writer's Routine, I just wanted to take a second and run you through the ways that you can get in touch with the show. There are quite a few. Uh, you can do it over on Twitter. We are Writer's Pod on there. And you can get kind of frequent motivational quotes and pictures to help you along with your writing. And also, you'll get a very quick retweet if you give me any praise too. Also, we're on Instagram. It's Writer's Routine there. Pretty much the same stuff on Twitter, uh, just with a few glossier filters on and you can get in touch with us you can listen to everything we've done on the show so far uh, and you can find all the different ways to catch us over on writersroutine.com so it's time for today's writing tip that may change the way you work forever in the middle of mostly every show we hear a little snippet from the author who we've had on for a full chat recently uh, we get a little bonus tip a tiny little tidbit of advice from them we drag out any morsel that we can this week it's from a romantic comedy debut author who wants you to give your fingers a break and just to tell your story. Hello, I'm Sophie Jenkins and my book, The Forgotten Guide to Happiness, is out now. And my tip, my best tip for writing is to use Dragon voice recognition software because that way you can talk your story to the screen and the words come up right in front of your eyes and you never got to sit there looking at 
nothing. Now, if you enjoyed that and you want to hear more about Sophie Jenkins' debut, The Forgotten Guide to Happiness, uh, you can right now on the last episode of the podcast, which is Writer's Routine number 31. Right, let's get back to the main guest on today's Writer's Routine. It's one of the UK's most successful crime writers, Mark Billingham. Now, he's publishing the 15th novel in his Tom Thorne series, uh, his 18th book overall. Uh, Later on this June, it's called The Killing Habit, and it focuses on a real-life case, uh, the UK cat killer, formerly the M25 cat killer, formerly the Croydon cat killer, who is still, at the time of this recording, at large, by the way. So it is interesting to hear how Mark moulded his own ideas and treaded quite carefully when putting the characters that millions of his readers uh, want to hear from into that story of a case that's still going on. We also talk about language and the way that you can make sure you're being efficient with your words. And we pick things up by reflecting on the moment just after his first book had been published. It was a huge success. And he sits down and thinks, right, I'm a proper writer now. What happens next? There was one very scary moment when I I was in in the publisher's office, um just after the first book had come out and the first book did really well and and I knew it had that hook it had that incredibly strong hook and I remember somebody at the publisher going oh what's the hook with the second one and I was thinking well there isn't a hook and I suddenly thought there's no way I can I can write a book a year that's got a hook um, I mean obviously you know it, it, it's, a, it's a great day that you think of a, of a hook if you think of one or a brilliant twist that's a good day at the office and it can happen anywhere when you get up in the morning when you're in the shower but you can't you know, there's no, not an endless supply of them, and essentially, as long as you've got strong, engaging characters that the that 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 your readership take to, that's all you can hope for. Because then you've got suspense from page one. Actually, that is the trick to creating suspense: is giving readers uh, the character, giving readers characters they care about. It's not about twists and reveals and cliffhangers and all that. It's about character. Well, you're 15 books. Well, more than 15 mm. books deep now. Almost 18 books deep. You must know how to make a character that a, a reader appreciates that they feel close to. Well, I hope so. How do you do that? Um, it's problematic because the, the, there are so many problems that go along with writing a series, a long-running series. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm facing one right now. This, this is the, an archetypal pro, uh, problem you get with writing a series in that something happened at the end of my last book which is a book called Love Like Blood, something really, really major happened to two of the characters. Now, so I'm, now I'm writing uh, the next book. Sorry, this, this thing happened at the end of The Killing Habit, the book that's coming out in June. So I'm writing the next book. Now, I have to acknowledge this thing that's happened. I can't pretend it hasn't happened. It's something very major that's going to change both those people's lives. So I have to acknowledge it and reference it, and they have to talk about it without saying what it is, without giving away essentially the ending of the previous book. Now, anybody that's read the previous book, it's all going to be fine. But if this is the first book of mine that people pick up, they might be going, oh, why is he, what's he teasing us with this stuff about? You know what? And I'm, all, I'm already thinking that I may have to write some kind of author's note at the end of the book to explain that I'm really not doing this to, <laughs> to piss you off. But it's like if I didn't do it, I wouldn't be being true to the characters. Because, you know, they're not cartoons. The, the characters are affected by what happens to them. 
book on book and plot on plot and and you know they're dealing with grief, grief and pain and loss and death and violence and it changes people and those scars have to stay with them and I can't pretend this stuff hasn't happened and I'm not just being coy and giving you little clues but I can't tell you what it was that happened um, you'd have to go out and read the previous book it's a really difficult thing and, and that kind of problem happens all the time Have you picked up any tips or tricks along the way through 18 books of making your characters more authentic I'd imagine that they're more three-dimensional now having written so so prolifically than they possibly were at the start they're probably less i think they're more authentic as human beings and possibly less authentic as as coppers the ones that are coppers because i've got less bothered about research I'm, i'm much less uh hidebound by that i used to think i had to get every single fact right i mean i was crazy about it you know i would go to a set traffic lights to check you could turn left you know i really would be a maniac about that stuff and now I've learnt that you only need to research the things that you need to research. The rest of it doesn't matter. You know, what you call that particular police unit, the particular acronym, the, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's the murder squad. That's, that's all you need to know. If your, if your plot stands or falls on, you know, how long it will take to get a DNA processed or whatever it is, and you need to get that right, you can't cheat. But you just need to get the stuff right that you need to get right. And, and everything, you know, the rest of the time you're wasting your time. You're kidding yourself you're working when you're just sitting, you know, researching in inverted commas. Work, well, only writing is, is work, really. You, you've talked about the process of the very first book that you published. Now let's talk about the book that's coming up in, yeah. in June. Yeah. Tell me about what you knew about that story before you sat down to write it. And maybe, if you can, try and analyse how the process was different from that book almost 20 years ago now? Well, I, I, I'd been following this case in the news, which is the case of a, uh, an individual that was called the Croydon Cat Killer when he started because he was just killing animals uh, around that area. But it, it's widened now to the M25 Cat Killer and now the UK Cat Killer, and he's still um, on the loose. And he's killed like 450 animals, mostly pet cats, the odd, the odd fox and rabbit and squirrel to keep himself interested. But it's, and it may well be more than one person. But obviously one of the things about that, for, for those of us that have written as many times as I have about serial killers, it's a very common uh, early sign that they kill or torture animals, along with starting fires and persistent bedwetting past the age of six. But you didn't need to know that. Um, so I thought, yeah, I quite want to write about that. And then an ex-cop who I know said that she knew someone who was involved in the case and could talk to me when he'd retired. And I said, when is he going to retire? And she said, oh, in about three months. So I had three months to wait to talk to this guy who'd been closely involved in the case and, and got some interesting stuff out of it and thought, yeah, I just, I, you know, I want to write about that. As to how the process of it was different from the first book, I suppose, you know, 18 books in, I'm, I'm rather, I'm more, I know that I'm going to get it done. I know that it will happen, but I'm still every bit as 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 terrified when I start. It's the weirdest thing. You finish a book and you're the king of the world because you've finished a book and then you have a maybe six weeks, you know, kicking back and, and doing nothing and then you start again. It's like you've forgotten how to do it. It's the most bizarre, bizarre thing. And again, most writers I know have that have that where they go, I can't, that's it, I'm done. I can't do it again. And it takes you about 100 pages before you go, oh yeah, I know, yeah, it'll be all right. It's the oddest thing that you just think, I can't do it. I can't do it again. You're just looking at that thing that says chapter one and this winking kind of cursor on your screen and you go, I've got no idea how to do this. Because you kind of, you race off, you sort of race off and you race towards the end. But there's a horrible bit in the middle, those horrible 50,000 words in the middle where you just think, this is terrible. This is just some people in a room talking. 
nothing's happening it's just baggy and saggy and garbage um and you just need to push through that kind of slump and actually that's where things like twitter which most of the time are a huge distraction can come in really useful because there's a big writing community out out there and you just put a tweet up going this book is kicking my ass and a hundred writers will just get back straight back to you and go yeah me too and you go oh that's all right then you've always got to be a bit careful where you're sort of fictionalizing real life case which I've, i've not really done before because it's dangerous, uh, you know, especially if you're talking about, you know, homicide, then, then, then you really are dealing with, with potentially very sensitive areas. Um, with this, I just thought, you know, this cat killer is out there. I'm going, you know, it's very, it was very simple to me. Thorne gets given the case, which, of course, he doesn't want. He's like, cats? Are you serious? You know, I'm, I, I'm a homicide detective, and, you know, but we don't know what this person could step up to become. Uh, so he gets the chance to try and catch a killer before the killers started killing so you know yeah i had i had some real information there's plenty of stuff out there about these cat killings and i did i did some of that research which i've just told you is terribly unimportant but i did a bit of it you know and i talked to some coppers and just talk you know I, I do spend some time talking to coppers once once every couple of years i will go out on an all-night ride along uh pretending to be a copper with some with some uniform cops which is an eye-opener most of the time um and yeah no it was it was it was actually very straightforward it was actually a very straightforward book to read to write i hope it's straightforward to read it was straightforward enough to write well let's see how straightforward it is to read then and talk very quickly about language i was chatting to an author the other day who took great pride in that his book was just the nuts and bolts of the story there was no frilly language involved there was no floral tapestry which didn't need to be there he was so pleased that his story was an airport thriller how much are you thinking about the language that you're using? What word you're putting after the next word to paint the picture of your tale? Um, well, I, I, I don't want ever to want to be guilty of overwriting, which is kind of what you're talking about, of purple prose or whatever. You know, if four words can do the job of 40, then you should put the four words. You know, we're all trying to hit our word count, but you just have to be honest with yourself and go, do I really need that? You know, can I, you know, if the sentence, if the sentence is, you know, he stood up from the table, he took his jacket from the back of the chair and with a sardonic glance at the waiter, he walked towards the door. Now you could just go, he got up and left. Now, if he got up and left, does the job, then you've really got to ask yourself if you need all that other stuff. You know, it it is about editing and pairing back and less is more. And no, I kind of agree with that writer, whoever he or she is, um, that you know, you should say what you should, what you need to say as simply as possible. If you, and just be honest with yourself, you're writing commercial fiction. You know, I'm not a writer of literary fiction. I write commercial crime novels. And yes, I'm trying to write the most, do you know the word, the word is elegant. I'm trying, I, I guess, I, I guess you're trying to write elegant prose without it being uh, too flowery. Well, I guess my question now is, how do you know if four words is enough? How do you have that ability to self-edit as you're going? You... You recognise your own voice. You know you've got your own little foibles. You know you have your own verbal tics. I do a little copy edit on myself whenever I finish a book. Whenever I finish a book, this is way before I deliver it, I will go through the manuscript or the file and I will look for certain key phrases, which I know I overuse. And I will just make a note of where they all are. I will note them all down in a notebook where they all are and then I will go through and take them out. Um, What are the main culprits? (laughs) Things like pretty much. 
which I use pretty much all the time. So I will look for pretty much. And then I will replace it with more or less and then realize I've used more or less a hundred times. Just about, more or less, pretty much. We use those kind of phrases all the time. And sometimes, though, having said that, you've got to avoid what's called the elegant variation, where you change a word or a phrase just because you can't bear to repeat it, when actually, in real life, certainly in dialogue, it would be repeated. You know, it's like, I can't, I can't bear reading stuff that's like, um, uh, I have taken my car into the garage. Have you taken your vehicle into the garage? Yeah, you know, call it a car. It's a car. Call it what it is. You don't have to think of another word for it just because you've used the word car once. Um, so, and, you, and I hate that stuff because it's bogus. And, and it's especially true of dialogue, which you just have to make as, as natural as possible. And people do repeat themselves all the time. And what people don't do is constantly call one another by their names. You know, you, re- you read, an, you read a, a scene between a couple who've been married for 40 years and they're constantly calling each other by their name and you go, in what universe does that actually happen? <laughs> there are certain, uh, I suppose, boxes you have to tick if you're writing genre fiction. Nobody makes you write genre fiction. Nobody's got a gun to your head. So if you're going to do that, you have to fulfil certain expectations that the reader will have, that there, there will be certain characters. You know, if it's a Thorn novel, and I'm not going off and doing a standalone, um, that they're, you know... Those characters, Thorne and Hendrix and Tanner and Brigstock and those, those characters will appear in the books. Um, yeah, they, they usually expect a smattering of country music and uh, a smattering of football. And, and But, you know, I'm also trying to do something different with every book because, that again, that is the curse of the series novel. That, that what readers want is a novel that's different from the last one, but not too different. You know, if you suddenly do a big switch like you switch from third person to first person or something, that's a real shock. I know writers that have done it, and it's really worked, but it's... Um, uh, or I'm going to bring that character into the foreground, and actually Tom Thorne's just going to be a really minor player in this one. That would be a, a big ask. So, yeah, different but not too different. When you were sat down in Corfu then, belting out your first novel in longhand while yeah. the kids were in bed, it's quite a gamble, I think, because, you know, you, you're married, you've got children, you've got a house... To then, did you ever, I guess, did you ever expect this part of your career to be now what you're most known for? No, absolutely not. I mean, like I say, I've been an actor and I've been a stand-up and, you know, uh, very average at both. And um, th- this was a sort of, you know, I loved reading crime fiction. I was hanging around the crime fiction community. I was reviewing stuff. I was doing, it was like the missing piece of the jigsaw to try and write one. And, and I got phenomenally lucky and like I say I know dozens and dozens of writers who've written 28 unpublished novels you know who can write me under the table but it's just about being sort of yeah working hard and, and being lucky and I'm a big, big believer in that old you know the, the the harder I work the luckier I get but um no it's 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 a fantastic job to have and it is a job I do treat it absolutely like a job I'm not sitting around waiting for the muse to descend any writer who says that needs a good slap um it's a job you know you sit your sit your ass in the chair and you go to work and and all the other stuff like I said you know festivals and being treated very nicely and flown around the world to talk about the, these stories you've made up is just a fantastic perk it's lovely but go to work in slightly jazzy lounge pants that are pajamas in jazzy lounge pants and a ratty dressing gown absolutely so that is it for this week's writer's routine thank you so much to Mark Billingham honestly one of the the nicest most chilled out and captivating authors that I've had the pleasure of sitting down and chatting with in front of a microphone so I really appreciate his time and his invitation to his house and even his lift back to the tube station really thank you for that it was a long walk down the hill now you can get links to all of his work right now over on our website writersroutine.com And while you're there, you can catch up on any show that you've missed so far and you can get in touch. So thank you as well, you, yes, you, for giving us a listen. If you've enjoyed it, 
please tell someone that you don't know about the show. You can do that dead easily with a review over on the iTunes podcast store. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram. And make sure you're back next week because we've got something a little bit different for us. We're chatting to an American travel writer who has just published a book on being without men. So, yeah, that'll be a nice little change from the fiction work and those authors that we usually have on the show. And I'm very excited for it. Make sure you're there. I will see you then next week with another writer's routine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.